I've decided to transcribe my father's journal. I figure it'll help me understand what was happening to me and what is now happening to everyone in my neighborhood. My dad was a quiet, reserved, and no-nonsense kind of guy. I didn't really get to know him much, so this is a way for me to get in touch with him, to hear about his life, to hear his voice, even beyond the grave. I hope that you get to know him too, and that together, anyone who has gotten a midnight paper learns a little more about it. This is what was written in the first section of the journal. Son, I know that if you're reading this, it's you. I hope you aren't. I hope that this notebook and all the others get thrown out once you sell your house. If you're reading this, well, I guess I can't stop you from reading this. I know that there's a good chance that you found this notebook after reading a midnight paper. If you haven't read one, listen to me very carefully. Do not read the midnight paper. If you've only read one, listen to me very carefully. Do not read any more. I'm not sure, but I think that reading the papers makes the things in them real. Some of the articles that I've read have already come true. Some people are already in danger, hurt, or dead. I may have found a way to stop this. First, though, I'm going to transcribe all the midnight papers I received. Some of them I have transcribed already, across several notebooks, and I'm just copying them here. Some of them I haven't gotten yet, but I know I will. I'm no writer. I never went to college. But here's my version of what happened anyway. The first time I saw a midnight paper was when I was 18, in 1969, in a Shao Valley, Vietnam. I haven't talked about my time in the war much. I never felt I had to. I'm not going to go into much detail here, just what's necessary. I was a leatherneck with the 3rd Marine Division, part of what they said was called Operation Dawson River. For us, though, it didn't matter what you called it. We were just wading through miles and miles of water and elephant grass. I'm from Brooklyn. I used to think the summers there were hot. This was something else. The heat was a, like a living thing. You'd feel it wrapping around you, squeezing the air out of your lungs and the sweat of your skin. We mostly did a lot of walking. I'm not going to talk about what we did when we weren't walking. And during the day, we stayed quiet. All you'd hear was the sound of the feet of the guy in front of you, working into the mud, the feet of the guy behind you, and your feet. We did as we walked, no talking there either. You got used to it. There were a few good times. We joined some other groups of young guys at FSB, fire support base, and talk crap, smoke weed, listen to music, play cards, be kids again, for a bit. That's where I met Ty. I was 18, but big for my age. Most guys thought I was in my late 20s. Ty was the opposite. It was impossible to look at him and not think he was 16. He was skinny, wore glasses, and they were always scuffed up or caked in grime, and had the deepest voice I'd ever heard. The guy sounded like Leonard freaking Cohen. But anyway, Ty was popular with the guys because he had somehow managed to smuggle in a bunch of comic books and had them mailed to him too. People would trade him a beer, some beef jerky, or even a joint for a Captain America or an Archie. Most of the time, people would pretend to be older than they were, would pretend that they were men, not boys. With Ty, it was different. He was like everyone's little brother, and it was cool to sit back, light up, and hear the kid talk about what I'd always thought of as the funny pages. 
Then one day, Ty got something that wasn't a comic book in the mail. We were on patrol, and we'd set up our RON, rest overnight spot. You slept sitting down with your back to another leatherneck, so as to watch each other's six. I was back to back to Ty, and he woke me up by muttering something. I didn't quite catch it, but it sounded like not here or out here. What? I asked, turning around to see what he was looking at. There in front of his feet was a bundle of black paper. At the time, I thought it was some kind of knapsack. Ty ignored me. He just set his M16 and used his knife to cut the little bundle open. It unrolled itself slowly, and there at the top of what I could now see was a page were the words, the midnight paper. What is that? A newspaper? I asked. Ty nodded. I was getting them back home for a while. Real weird. Always shows up at midnight. They knock on your door three times. I felt something hit my boots three times too. I guess I didn't wake up until now. It was almost dawn and just bright enough to make out the words on the page. Come on, I said. Read it out loud. Ty didn't look convinced. I don't know if I should, he said. I lunged like I was going to grab it, and Ty held it at bay. He may have saved my life. Fine, he said. Ty read the following aloud. Treehead. Paranoia on the battlefield? After several reports of a strange creature in the hills of Vietnam, military officers urge all members of the armed forces to remain calm but vigilant. The first sighting occurred several weeks ago. Redacted, stationed at Redacted, reported it to his commanding officer. I thought it was just a tree at first, Redacted, said. I don't know what kind, just the type you always see out there, but it kept moving like it was following me around. The first few times it was sticking out of some tall grass or some bushes, so I couldn't see where it ended. But I saw it standing out in the open once. It's a man. The tree trunk's growing out of where the neck should be. It's this huge freaking tree, like 20 feet tall, covered in leaves and everything, like all the other ones out here. But it was coming out where the head should have been. The thing was wearing a uniform too, one of theirs. It had arms, legs, even freaking sandals. It was just like a normal guy with a giant tree where the head should be, you know? I lit the thing up, but it didn't make a sound or nothing. They called me out about shooting without reason, giving away our position. I don't give a damn. Now every tree I see, I'm keeping my gun on. The bizarre tree head phenomenon was even cited as being the cause of a helicopter crash. The thing took out a freaking Huey, said one witness. The tree part of it was maybe 15 feet at one moment, and then it grew to what must have been 100 feet tall. The Huey slammed right into it. Then it shrank back down like it... Like that was what it wanted to do all along. Those in command are convinced they have an explanation for the uncanny sightings. It's paranoia, plain and simple, said Redacted. A Redacted stationed at Redacted. We've got people out here who are sleeping two to three hours a night, if at all. These men are trained to look for enemies in the trees or the tall grass. Seeing an enemy in the trees when he's not really there isn't anything new. Seeing the same enemy as a tree is a natural extension of that. The men on patrol, however, are convinced that Treehead is a real threat. They have started blaming disappearances on the creature, and even casualties in battle. The thing's a killer, said one alleged witness. Its head may look like a tree, but that don't mean it's a normal tree, right? 
Indeed, there have been reports that during a firefight, the creature known as Treehead alters its tree in all manner of deadly ways, all to defend the Viet Cong. Some men have reported seeing the branches of Treehead's head extend and skewer men. Some have reported witnessing Treehead grow vine-like protrusions to lift men who wander too close to it, swallowing them into its leaves so that they'll never be seen again. Still, other witnesses have reported Treehead showering troops on patrol with strange spores. The men covered in these spores have all been killed within a few days, always by incoming enemy fire. It's as if that crap attracts bullets somehow, said one witness. Despite how interesting these reports may be, all evidence points to the being known as Treehead simply being a hallucination brought on by sleep deprivation and anxiety about enemy forces. Still, it may be wise to stay away from an, any unidentified vegetation. Ty put the midnight paper down. I burst out laughing. What is that, man? An arts and crafts project? Did Jamie put you up to this? Ty shook his head. He wasn't smiling. He was pale. This'll come true, he said. Just wait and see. A few weeks later, Ty was gone. He didn't go out during combat. He just up and vanished one night. Some people say that he went out to take a piss and stumbled upon a foxhole or an enemy patrol. Maybe he was taken prisoner or killed outright. To this day, he's listed as MIA, part of the around 1,600 MIAs still unaccounted for in the conflict. Funny thing is, he was right. A week or so after I read that strange newspaper, people really did start saying they saw a tree head. Back then, I thought that Ty had told them about it. Now I know better because the next midnight paper I got was delivered to my front door. That was the first entry in my dad's notebook. I'm going to keep reading. I know that most of my neighbors, if not all of them, are getting midnight papers now. I have to find a way to stop them from being delivered. Finding out more about the midnight papers is the only way to do that. I sat on my front porch on Wednesday, just a few minutes before midnight. I wouldn't be getting a midnight paper tonight, but most people on my block would, and if they did, whatever article they read would come true. I didn't know if every copy of the midnight paper held the same article, or if they would all come true in the same way mine had, within the same time frame. I didn't intend to find out. My phone alarm blared, alerting me to the fact that it was now 11.59pm. I sprinted off my front porch and ran to the house next door, then froze. I wasn't planning on interfering with the delivery process itself. I'd learned my lesson. I was now an outsider, someone coming between the paper and its intended recipient. I had a feeling that whatever system or entity delivered each copy wouldn't exactly be thrilled by my presence. So I waited for another minute. I saw the light on my neighbor's front porch flicker, dwindle, and then cut off completely. Then I blinked and it was back on, shining normally. Nothing looked different from where I was standing, but I knew that it was. Inexplicably different, irrevocably different. Something had appeared on my neighbor's welcome mat that could change his life and existence as we know it, forever. I walked toward the welcome mat, cautiously, eyeing the darkened windows for any movement or light. I knew that the paper's arrival meant that three knocks had been hammered onto their mosquito screen by something. If he had been woken up by it, then who knew how much time I had before my neighbor went to check his front door. 
I took the last few steps, crossing the threshold, separating perfectly legal evening stroll to very illegal trespassing. I was about to cross yet another threshold, too, if things went as planned. There on a welcome mat, so worn you could count its remaining fibers, was a bundle of black paper. The midnight paper. I didn't hesitate. I acted the same way I might if the bundle in front of me held dynamite instead of paper, and the fuse was lit. I lunged, reached out, and clutched the midnight paper in one swift motion. Pulled my hand up. Then I lowered it and pulled it up again. I was confused. I had to be imagining it. Maybe I hadn't closed my hand right. Maybe the nerves had gotten the better of me and... No. My eyes weren't playing tricks on me. My hand was empty. I reached for the paper more slowly, making sure my fingers were dropping as close to the welcome mat as possible. I focused, guiding each trembling digit toward the black bundle, planning out their trajectory and imagining them closing around the paper, as if I were moving my hand for the first time. Then my fingers went through it, through the paper, as if it were a trick of the light, as if it were made of shadows, as if there was nothing there, nothing solid anyway. I bolted, practically throwing myself off my neighbor's porch and retreating to the safety of my parents' house. It didn't let me grab it. It didn't let me take it. It didn't let me stop it. And I was pretty sure I knew why. That midnight paper wasn't meant for me. It was meant for my neighbor. I collapsed onto my dad's chair. In front of me, already open to the next entry, was his journal. I had to read more, to find out more, because my dad said that he may have found a way to stop the midnight paper. But most importantly of all, I had to keep reading because my dad hadn't stopped the midnight paper. This was what was written in my dad's handwriting. I made it through Vietnam, somehow. That may not mean a lot to some people reading this, but it sure as shit meant a lot for me. I saw kids who were smarter than me, better than me, more there than me, meant for more than me, cut down, tossed aside, blown away like chunks of pointless meat. They call it survivor's guilt, but I always thought that was stupid. I didn't feel guilty about living through all I had. I felt lost, like a piece of floatsome that drifted in just the right way to find its way ashore. A piece of floatsome that had survived when hundreds of pieces around it had been crushed, burned or swept under by the wreckage of a gargantuan ship. I'd call what I felt survivors anger, survivors indignation, survivors haze, anything but guilt. I went back to the States. I heard that some vets were offended by the way they were received. Years of protests for peace had passed. Years of people claiming that we were a cruel machine spewing napalm and automatic gunfire and reducing a people and a nation to raw, bloody, charred bits of gore. We were the bad guys. We were a giant boot on the throat of a tiny nation. I wasn't offended. I agreed with the anger and the hate. I knew that I was a cog in a cruel machine. I knew that I was partly to blame. I didn't feel guilt. I felt shame. And there's a difference. I didn't turn to drugs like some of us did, but I guess that's subjective. I didn't go home. I went to the place where I was born. There's a difference. I didn't stay anywhere for long. There was something missing everywhere I went. I avoided people. They asked too many questions, cast too many looks. Until I found her. She had a flower's name, and she reminded me of one. 
She had the same kind of innocent wisdom I attributed to everything in nature. I saw flowers in Vietnam that were less colorful, less forgiving about our trampling boots and our fire and our filth than she was. I met your mother, of all places, at a bus stop. She asked me what time it was. I said I didn't know. She smiled. She was too kind. A few years later, we'd managed to scrounge together enough and save up for a house. Her parents helped. It wasn't just that they were better off than mine. They were. The fact that she still talked to them didn't hurt. The day you were born, I felt more pride and more shame than I'd ever felt in my entire life. You were so clean, so new, so unmarked by the filth and the cruelty of the world. I felt like something vile, evil, dirty, tired. I wanted to run away and leave you and your mother to share your light. But I stayed, because you were so bright you pulled my darkness in. I didn't talk to you much, because I thought my words would poison you, that they'd echo in your tiny head and become part of your own. But I love to hear you talk, love the way you strung ideas together. So when your mother told me to tell you a story, to be more involved with what you were so quickly becoming passionate about, I told the only one I knew. I told you about the midnight paper. I told your mother first, years before. But when I told you, it felt more final. If you ever have kids, you'll know. Every word you speak to them feels heavy, like it's made of iron. Like iron, it would leave a mark. So I sat with you in my office. I let you in. You liked the books and the pictures. You explored the room the same way someone would explore an uncharted cavern. Like a cavern, too, it was dark and filled with danger. I made the midnight paper sound like something magical. Like something exciting. You get it without wanting to, I said. It just finds a way to your front door. It's delivered to only some homes at midnight, on the dot. You get three knocks in your door and it's there. It just shows up. You like that part. Hell, you like the whole story. Your face lit up in a way I'd never seen when you were with me. You got that way whenever your mother talked to you. I must have told you about the paper over a dozen times before it happened. One night, as I was filling your mother in on what you and I had talked about, we heard three knocks on our front door. I ran toward it. I didn't have a gun in the house, and I almost regretted that there. There was nobody in the peephole, so I opened the door. There on our welcome mat was something I'd recognize anywhere. A bundle of black paper, exactly like the one Ty had gotten. I brought it inside and tossed it onto my desk. I cut the twine and the paper unrolled itself like a half-dead bug. I saw a header written in blocky white letters, the midnight paper. I couldn't read anything else because there was nothing else. Below the header was just a heap of garbled text. I couldn't grasp it. No matter how I turned it around in my mind, it was as if my eye slipped off of the edge of the words. I was going to throw it out, but then your mother walked in. The knocks had startled her. My behavior had terrified her. So she looked and read a few of the words out loud. My eyes went wide, unbelieving. She could read the paper, and I couldn't. I didn't get it then, but I do now. She was the intended recipient, not me. Every particle of the paper was meant for her. After a little convincing, your mother agreed to read the article out loud. This is what was written on the page. Guess. Board game blamed for homicides pulled from shelves. 
What did the person across from you have for breakfast? What's that person next to you hiding in their pocket? Who is that knocking on your front door? Guess. These words, printed on a white cardboard box, greeted shoppers perusing the shelves in the weeks before Thanksgiving. It seemed harmless, said, redacted, a shopper who witnessed one of the boxes. My family doesn't really play board games, so I didn't consider getting it. Thank God I didn't. The cover of the cardboard box depicts a smiling family set around a dining room table. In between them is a white game board. A series of black and white squares line the edge of the board, forming a wide rectangle inside which sits a single deck of black cards. There are game pieces populating several of the squares. Each is a rough plastic depiction of a human being. There is a pair of black dice in the hand of a smiling woman, presumably the mother of the two happy family. The families who played the game for real were anything but happy. The rules are simple, the instruction booklet proclaims. Each player picks a single game piece and places them in the starting square, at one corner of the board. This is also the final square. The aim of the game is to move around the board and be the first player to reach the last square. The game is played by rolling the die and moving the number of squares corresponding to the die roll. Upon moving to the correct square, a player must draw a single card from the top of the deck in the center of the game board. On each card is a fun prompt to guess something about one of the players in the game. For example, one of our 100 cards reads, Guess what your slut of a daughter did with her boyfriend on Friday. If you guess correctly, you can stay in the square your game piece landed in. If you guess incorrectly, shucks, you've got to move your piece back to the starting square. The game doesn't end until all pieces move to the final square. After not being seen for several days, police officers performed a wellness check at the redacted residence in Redacted. What they found inside the family's home was nightmarish, to say the least. The family was sitting around the dining room table, said Redacted of the Redacted Police Department. They had been dead for several days. There were several weapons in the room, mostly gardening equipment and knives from the kitchen. The board game itself appears to have been placed clandestinely in each store, with barcode stickers identifying it as another game that the store had in stock. The manufacturer of the game is unknown at this time, but there appears to be a great deal of effort and money expended in the game's creation. None of its elements are cheap or shoddy in the slightest. The prevailing theory of local law enforcement is that the game provoked them into attacking each other, said Dr. Redacted, our local psychologist who was consulted regarding the grisly scene. But that explanation doesn't satisfy me, or anyone who knew the family involved. Nobody in their right mind would have followed the game's directions, no matter how angry they may have gotten with each other. The directions that Dr. Redacted is referring to were printed on each of the guest cards in the game's deck. The cards started out harmlessly. The first read, Guess the size of the shirt the person on your left is wearing. The next card, however, was already delving into controversial territory. It read, Guess how much the little shit on your right stole from your wallet. The cards got even worse and worse. Guess who the pig in front of you is screwing behind your back. Eventually, the cards began prompting violence. Guess who's going to grab a knife from the kitchen? Guess how many pencils you can fit in your wife's right eye. A few days later, the redacted family, on the other side of town, 
were also reported missing by concerned co-workers and family members. A similar scene to that in the redacted home was discovered in their living room. All four members of the family were dead, with all the evidence pointing to the fact that they had killed each other with household objects. The guest board game was on a coffee table in the center of the room. There were several cards tossed on the bloody carpet, each containing violent directions. One read, Guess how many shots of drain cleaner it takes until your mother collapses. I believe there's a very simple explanation, said Dr. Redacted. It is very likely that the game was placed in the shops and then observed by its creator or creators. Once a customer purchased it, they were followed home. One or more perpetrators forced the family to play, most likely while threatening their lives with a firearm. This is the only explanation for seemingly normal families to torture each other in such a grotesque manner. There's no evidence to support that theory. Redacted, chief of the Redacted Police Department stated, there were no signs of forced entry to any of the homes. There was no forensic evidence to support the presence of anyone, except for the family members being at the scene. I'm no psychologist, but I would never do those things to any member of my family, even if someone was holding us at gunpoint. There's a third explanation, one that is often espoused online, a supernatural explanation. What if the people who play the game absolutely have to guess, wrote one anonymous online user? What if their guess has actually come true somehow? Like if you guess that someone will go to the kitchen to grab a knife, then that person is forced to move and to do what you said. Whatever the case may be, one thing is clear. If you see a board game called Guess for sale at any store, do not buy it. Do not play it. Call the authorities and alert the store owners so that they may remove it safely. Your mother and I decided to never talk to you about the midnight paper again. I wish that getting rid of it had been that simple. I'll keep transcribing my dad's notes and sharing them on here. I have to find a way to stop this. <laughs> 